Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. Now, coming up in this week's show, how scientists have found a way to turn billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide into rock, and that could help to control the greenhouse effect. And on the subject of the greenhouse effect, why fungi might hold the key also to a reduction in CO2, and we'll be finding out why shortly, and also why some people are more prone to alcoholism than others. Scientists have made a mouse that's a bit prone to a tipple. And we're finding out about that in just a second. Helen. Thanks, Chris. And this week has also been the UK's first ever National Pathology Week. So we're putting the work of the pathologists under the microscope. We'll be finding out how to handle an outbreak of deadly infectious disease and also taking part in a post-mortem to understand just how a pathologist discovers why it is a person has died. Plus, we'll also be hearing how pathologists in Cambridge have helped doctors to develop a promising new treatment for multiple sclerosis. Up until now, people have always thought that once you've got disability from multiple sclerosis, that is due to permanent scarring in the brain and that will never get better. And we had imagined that the best we could get out of any treatment of multiple sclerosis is that people would just stay the same and not get any worse. But amazingly, we now see people getting better. And we'll be hearing how that treatment works later on in the show, Chris. Thank you very much, Helen. So a highly pathological programme for you this week. And if you've got a question for us about anything pathological, our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. People are very worried everywhere about the concept and prospect of global warming and the fact that by burning fossil fuels, we're churning out something like 30 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide every single year. And whether or not you think that does make a difference to the Earth's climate, dealing with that problem, i.e. preventing that release of CO2 into the atmosphere, can't be a bad thing. But how do we do it? Trying to scavenge CO2, in other words, remove CO2 from the effluent, the flue gases of power plants, is not trivial, and nor is it expensive when you think that a big power station can pump out something like 3,000 tonnes of CO2 just in an afternoon. Well, what about borrowing from nature? Because CO2 levels on the scale of the Earth have changed over tectonic timescales every few million years, and that's because of plate tectonics. In other words, when the tectonic plates of the Earth move around, they can push up mountains. And what happens is that this displays to the atmosphere various minerals that are in those rocks, and those minerals react with CO2, and they remove CO2 from the atmosphere and turn it into rock. Well, can we do the same stunt? Well, Peter Kellerman, who is a researcher at Columbia University in America, says yes, and he's got a paper in this week's edition of the journal PNAS, and in this he sets out a strategy whereby we could do this. His approach is to say, let's focus on the mineral olivine. This is a mineral of magnesium. It's a magnesium silicate. It's one of the most abundant chemicals in the Earth's mantle, which is normally quite deep down on Earth, but obviously where there are mountains, it comes close to the surface. And if you were to pipe CO2 into the olivine, 
it would react with the magnesium silicate to produce magnesite, which is magnesium carbonate, a solid, and it would also produce some silica, SiO2, sand, to you and I. Now, this process means that you would have to pump the CO2 in slightly warm at about 30 degrees C, but the reaction that happens is very exothermic. It gives out heat, so very quickly it would start to fuel itself. It would run itself. The reaction would heat up to about 185 degrees, and this would make the reaction happen very vigorously. And the result would be, he says, that for every one kilometre cubed of rock that you involved in this reaction, you could remove from the atmosphere something like 4 billion tonnes of CO2. So that's more than 10% of what we produce every single year. Are there any negative effects? Well, possibly. I asked him this, and Peter told me that one possibility is that you could get swelling of the rock, because obviously the, the solids take up more space, and this could lead to local land deformation and swelling. In other words, you could get miniature earthquakes and, and seismic effects, but they would be on the small scale. Where are all these deposits of rock? Are they readily available? Yes, they are, he says, and some of the biggest places, ironically, where they're found most, are in the Saudi Arabia, United Arab, Arab Emirates, Oman, Balkans, so lots of places where we're already getting fossil fuels that are responsible for the problem in the first place. So isn't it ironic that the place with the solution is also the place making the problem in the first place? It sounds fantastic. I mean, is there really enough olivine out there to deal with the carbon dioxide we're putting out now and in years to come and in years to come into the future? Is, it, is there really enough of it? If you're saying it's four billion tonnes of carbon dioxide per cubic kilometre. A cubic kilometre is quite a lot, isn't it? But we've got quite a big planet. The <laughs> radius of the Earth is about 6,000 kilometres, so if you work out the volume of the Earth, and the mantle is a huge amount of that, and this is the most abundant chemical on Earth, this is very eminently feasible. And Richard Branson has given a prize to, or, or offered a prize to the first person who can sequester, lock away a billion tonnes of CO2. This would certainly be in that ballpark. And although um, I asked Peter Kellerman if he's going to write to Richard Branson and ask if he can submit this, and he said, I think he wants to hear something a little bit more concrete than just a, a paper in PNAS. But at the same time, the strategy probably will work. Perhaps one day uh, soon, someone will give it a go. Well, there's been another bit of news about the fight against future climate change this week. And it might have an unexpected ally in the form of mushrooms living in the soil of northern spruce forests of Alaska, Canada and Scandinavia. Steve Allison and Kathleen Tresseed from the University of California, Irvine, conducted experiments in Alaska and found that when temperature increases, fungi living in the forest floor dry out and emit less carbon dioxide, which is actually the opposite of what researchers expected to find since colder climates are thought to slow down the processes by which fungi produce carbon dioxide in the first place. Well, this study was published in the journal Global Change Biology this week and it involved Alison and Traceed going out into the forests of Alaska and setting up several small greenhouses, well, quite a lot of them. And at the start of the experiment, at the beginning of the growing season in May, the scientists kept the conditions inside the greenhouses the same as in nearby control plots. Then they closed the greenhouses and the temperature of the air went up by 5 degrees Celsius and the temperature of the soil went up by 1 degree. Now, by carefully measuring the gases in all these experimental plots, what they found was that by the end of the growing season, in August, the amount of carbon dioxide produced by the soil in the greenhouse plots was around half of that produced in the unheated control plots. Now, Alison and Trasseed found that there was about half as much fungi also inside the heated greenhouses as in the unheated plots, which indicates that when the temperature increases, much of the fungi seem to really just die back and become inactive, and that could be why there's so much less carbon dioxide being produced. Mm. Sounds dodgy though, doesn't it? Because fungi have a very important role to play in the ecosystem. They're the major recyclers. So when detritus falls to the forest floor, it's the fungi that take the nutrients 
and return them to the soil so they're available for other other processes and other plants. So if, if those fungi aren't there, that's not good news for the soil, is it? It doesn't sound to me like that would be good news at all. So I think this kind of effect could well have important knock-on um, ecosystem effects that would need to be considered if this is something we're looking at. So really, this, this isn't obviously a solution to climate change, but it's an interesting effect to have found. In another direction, we often are finding the things that are getting worse when the temperature goes up. So maybe this will have a little effect. And one reason why we think maybe, you know, this is something interesting to think about is that we think that these northern forests actually lock away half the world's global carbon in the soils, the soil carbon rather, um, in these northern forests. So they are playing a very important role in keeping a lot of that carbon out of the atmosphere. So I suppose at the very least we can look at this as perhaps a bit of good news that all that carbon isn't going to be released very much more quickly as the planet begins to heat up, if it does. Um, But as I said, there are these knock-on effects that we could be seeing. So it's something that we need to look at, I think, in a lot more detail. And of course, uh, there's probably a much bigger uh, skeleton lurking in that climate change closet because um, a major problem is as the planet warms and the ice recedes from, say, high latitudes and the Arctic Circle, there are lots and lots of frozen lakes and frozen permafrosts in Siberia which have got lots of uh, organic matter frozen into them. And as soon as that material defrosts, it starts to be attacked by bacteria and fungi and turned into carbon dioxide and methane. And this is very potent greenhouse gas. So probably worrying a little bit about the fungi is only looking at one small part of the equation. There's probably a lot more serious events going to happen here because of a warming planet, if it does happen in the future. I think so. But as I say, you know, it's, we need to understand a lot more just about the whole system works. And this is one, one part of that puzzle. Worry, though. <clears throat> well, look, here's a human worry. And that's the question of alcoholism, because the stats are really quite worrying. One person in 20 is affected by alcoholism in the UK and worldwide. It's millions of people. But it turns out that it, that it could be that some people are genetically predestined to have a preponderance to become alcoholic. And this is an interesting piece of research that's been done by Gilles Martin, who is a researcher at the University of Massachusetts. He and his colleagues have genetically modified mice to try and understand what happens in the brain of mice and possibly therefore people who are exposed to alcohol. And in recent years, they've focused their attentions on a pore, a sort of nerve channel on the surface of nerve cells called BK, which allows potassium to go into cells. And when potassium goes into nerve cells, it damps down their activity. And when alcohol is added to a nerve cell, this pore becomes much more active. So more potassium goes into the cell and makes it less active. That's why when you drink, you feel Uh, depressed to a certain extent but also thought process is slow people become drowsy and sleepy and in big doses they will become unconscious because of this effect so they wanted to know how does alcohol affect this poor and try and gain an understanding of a phenomenon called tolerance because what we know about people who abuse alcohol or drink a lot is that Once you've started having regular intake of alcohol, you can sustain a very high level of alcohol in the blood, but the brain functions nearly normally. So in other words, how does this channel adapt, even though the alcohol is still there, so that it becomes less sensitive to the effect of alcohol? And they've focused on one small part of the channel called the beta-4 subunit. And what they did was to remove this gene for the beta-4 subunit from their mice and then study how these channels worked in in the laboratory and they found that the removal of this individual little bit of this pore made the mice become the equivalent of alcoholics. They had this very rapid tolerance building up in their brains. So it looks like they're suggesting perhaps people who have a tendency towards alcoholism have too little of this beta-4 protein in their channels, in their brain, or perhaps they have a mutated version. So either way, there's therefore the potential to have a test to determine whether you're at risk of becoming an alcoholic 
or there might be possibilities of making a drug which stabilizes the beta-4, increasing the level in the brain, making you less likely to become addicted or providing you with a way to treat the problem, which is encouraging. Are they going to start looking at sort of ex- experiments to test that on the mice? Are they going to? Well, they've done it on the mice. The next step is to say, let's look at the human equivalent. Now we know this is the thing to focus on. We can focus our attention on this and see, because this gene is in humans too. Do humans have the same behaviour? Do they show the same effects? Are there different bits of the brain that have a different form of this? And as a result, are some people with different forms of this gene more likely to have a problem? It would be interesting, wouldn't it, to, to get a genetic test to know if, if you're predisposed to alcoholism. I don't know what, how you'd respond as an individual to that. That's quite, um, quite interesting. But um, my last story this week comes from the world of technology, and that's uh, news of the world's most tiny solar panels that have been built and tested. And one day they may, in the not-too-distant future, be used to power even tinier microscopic machines. Now, these solar panels were built by Chaomei Jiang and her team of researchers from the University of South Florida in the States. And their study, published in the the Journal of Renewable and Sustainable Energy, describes how they built tiny solar panels about the size of a lowercase o in 12-point font on a computer. So pretty small. Just looking at a 12-point o, that's not very yes, big, is it? it's pretty tiny. And to make these tiny solar cells, the researchers didn't simply take normal photovoltaic solar cells, um, the sort of panels you might see on rooftops, and make them much, much smaller. They actually, because um, the, the regular solar panels are actually built on a brittle backing material made of silicon, um, similar to the sort of thing that computer chips are built on. Instead, um, these guys took um, made tiny solar cells based on an organic polymer that has the same properties as silicon, but that can be dissolved into a fluid and then sprayed and printed onto basically any flexible backing material. So theoretically, you know, anything that's in, t- in touch with light, you can actually make into a solar panel. But Jiang and her team are developing these tiny panels with the hope that one day they might power a type of microscopic sensor that can be used for detecting dangerous chemicals and toxins. Now, these detectors are built from carbon, carbon nanotubes. These are the tiny cylinders of carbon that are about 50,000 times thinner than a human hair. And the idea is that when the the nanotubes are hooked up to a power source of around 15 volts, they can detect tiny amounts of particular chemicals by measuring the electric charges um, that occur when different chemicals enter the tubes. And the exact change in the charge is an indicator of what type of chemical is present. Now, have they done this? Well, so far, they've put together an inch-long array of around 20 of these tiny cells, but that's only generated 7.8 volts. So the next step is for them to make slightly more powerful um, solar um, power panels, which they think they're going to be able to do by the end of the year. And perhaps that's uh, a new story we can follow up on. And it's amazing how some of the biggest discoveries involve some of the smallest amounts of technology. Thanks very much, Helen. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen, and it's National Pathology Week this week, so we have a very pathological programme for you. On the way, we'll be looking at the science behind the post-mortem, what goes on in the post-mortem room, and also a new way to, uh, to tackle the problem of multiple sclerosis. This is the autoimmune condition that attacks the brain and spinal cord, and now scientists have got a new way to attack it to, to attack the disease by using a special technique that was developed at Cambridge University. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. It's now time for kitchen science and it's quite an unusual kitchen science this week because it was based at an event run by the Royal College of Pathologists and the Natural History Museum in London. And we sent Ben along to a simulated disease outbreak and he was there to learn about the roles that pathologists play when we're faced with something that could turn into a disease epidemic. For this week's Kitchen Science, I have come along to the Royal College of Pathologists in London to join a team from the Natural History Museum to tackle an outbreak of infectious disease. Not a real one, you'll be pleased to hear, but an opportunity to see the real-life techniques used in this sort of situation. The first we heard about the outbreak 
was on the news. We are here in central London at the site of what may be the origin of the mysterious disease that has so far left several workmen critically ill in hospital and claimed the life of another. Building has disturbed a previously unknown medieval vault. Four days ago, workmen unearthed this vault during routine excavation as part of the central London regeneration programme. Those involved are now critically ill in the London Hospital of Infectious Diseases, with one fatality already reported. The workmen had stumbled across an ancient vault, but it had a much more recent corpse inside. To help us find out what had happened to the corpse in the vault, and by doing so give us clues as to what could be wrong with the workmen, Dr Nicky Cohen took me through the results of an autopsy. So we have a body in front of us. And looking at him, we can see that he's got some blood around his mouth and his eyes, and he's got blackened toes and fingers. And that blood picture is making me think that maybe he's got a blood clotting disorder. On top of that, he's got some insect bites around his ankles, and he's got a swelling on the side of his neck. I don't know what it is. I'll take a sample of it later. But putting that together with the insect bites and the rats that we know we're in the crypt, I'm concerned that he's got an infection and he's died of an infection which would fit with the live bodies from the patients in the hospital. As to what causes this, I think it's difficult and I don't know, but I guess something like mumps is an infection that can give you swollen glands in your neck, although not many people die of the mumps, of course. Um, we know there were rats involved, so leptospirosis viles disease might give us something similar to that, and that can cause blood clotting disorders. But in terms of putting that all together with the lumps in the neck, what I'm most concerned about is Yersinia pestis, which is plague, and we need to do some tests to find out if that's what it is. By looking at the sample taken from the swelling in the neck under a microscope, we were able to confirm the worst. The swelling contained Yersinia pestis bacteria, the plague. There are two stages of plague infection, bubonic and pneumonic. Bubonic plague causes the distinctive swellings on the body, or buboes, but is transmitted from one person to another through a vector, in this case, fleas. Now, most people think of plague as a medieval disease, long since wiped out, but Martin Hall, an entomologist at the Natural History Museum, explains how outbreaks of plague still happen today. Plague is found naturally in rodents in places like Southeast Asia, South America, Africa, there are wild rodents that have plague naturally in them, and they actually don't really suffer. They don't die from the disease. They're acting as what we call reservoir hosts. They just maintain the disease. But now and again, something happens to break that cycle. Uh, there might be a big outbreak of rats, and those rats become infested with the plague, and these domestic rats are much more susceptible to plague, and they can die. When they die, the fleas that were feeding on them don't have anything to feed on, so they go and look for something else to eat, and they may land on you and bite. Then the, the bubonic plague is transmitted to you. So it seems that the corpse in the vault contracted the plague and then died in the vault. The fleas living on the rats in the vault picked up the bacteria and passed it on to the workmen when they discovered the vault. Bubonic plague is treatable with antibiotics, but if this outbreak continues, the plague could progress to become the pneumonic form, which is spread through the air and has a 90% fatality rate. So the clock is ticking for us to take control of the outbreak before this happens. And this is where I need your help. What should we do to contain the outbreak and avoid a national epidemic of plague? I asked a few of the other amateur pathologists who had come along for the event. We ought to kill every rat we see. 
you need to let all of the GPs know in the area so that they can notify the people who are in charge of communicable diseases. We said to chop the rats and then like poison them, but then we were saying about the fleas and that we should burn the rats to maybe like get rid of the fleas and then we could quarantine anyone that has symptoms. So what steps do you think we should take to contain an outbreak of plague? Kill all the rats? Shut down the underground? Quarantine central London, perhaps? When we come back later on in the show, I'll let you know what we decided and if it was enough to stop a plague outbreak of medieval proportions. So what would you do if you were faced with deciding on how to control an outbreak of the plague? Would you whack the rats? What would you do? Let us know. Um, And also, if you've got any questions at all about pathology, we've got um, Adrian Newland from the Royal College of Pathologists going to be here in the studio, who's keen to answer your questions. So do let us know. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you very much, Helen. A couple of emails from uh, Mike Wild, who said uh, he's listening to us and uh, enjoys the show very much. And also Peter said, congratulations, keep up the uh, excellent work. Uh, Nuno Paquito is listening to us and says, uh, very much enjoy the show. Uh, Diane Atwood as well, thank you for your email, Diane. And Slade Wheeler, who uh, is listening to us while he is uh, painting in his studio in California. So thank you to all of those people for writing to us. Great to hear from you. Now, the science of pathology is all about uncovering the causes of different diseases. And it's this understanding of disease that ultimately helps doctors and scientists to develop new ways to treat or cure disease. And sometimes those treatments can also be used very effectively to tackle other diseases too. And now researchers at Cambridge have found a powerful new way to tackle the neurological condition, multiple sclerosis, where the immune system begins to attack the brain and the spinal cord. The way they've done this is by using an engineered antibody called CAMPATH, and it gets its name from the fact that it was developed at the pathology department at Cambridge University. It also goes by the name alemtuzumab, and it also works by locking onto and destroying lymphocytes, which are the white blood cells that drive our immune response. And it was the fact that it can do that that led Cambridge neurologist Alistair Coles and his colleagues to wonder whether they might be able to use it to tackle MS. If you see a young adult in this country who's disabled, then the likely thing is that they have multiple sclerosis. So this is the commonest disease of the brain and the spinal cord amongst Caucasian people in the West. It's a disease where the immune system attacks a particular part of the nerve in the brain or in the spinal cord. Now, that particular part is the myelin sheath. Now, what that means is the insulation that covers the nerve. And what that means is that nerves can lie across each other and short-circuit, or impulses intended for one area can cross over to another nerve and not reach their target. And so you get electrical confusion in the brain. Does this happen everywhere? Or is it quite discrete bits of the brain that get affected? You're absolutely right. The immune attack is just on specific patches within the brain. And each patch will go through a period where there's lots of inflammation, it may cause symptoms, and then it resolves and dies away, leaving scarring, only for other areas of the brain to become involved. Do you know what bits of the immune system are are doing that damage? So multiple sclerosis is um, one of these diseases where we are all capable of getting it. So if I looked in your blood or in my blood or anyone else's blood, we would find cells of the immune system, T lymphocytes, that are aggressive towards myelin, towards the brain. The thing that's stopping you or I from getting multiple sclerosis is that we have another set of cells called the regulatory T cells, which prevent the aggressive T cells from carrying out their attack. And in people who have multiple sclerosis, the defect is that their regulatory T cells are not working properly. 
So what have you been looking at in terms of how to get people to have the best outcome possible for them? Our initial logic was very simple, which is to say multiple sclerosis is a disease where the immune system attacks the brain. Let's disable the immune system and it will no longer attack the brain. And we looked around for a drug that might do that and we came across alemtuzumab, or as it was known then, Campath. And we said, well, this is a drug that deliberately hones in, identifies and kills one of the cells of the immune system, the lymphocyte. And it disables the immune system very effectively. And what was the nature of that trial? How many people? What did you do? Okay, so this is a trial that we've recently announced the results of, and it consists of 300 patients studied over three years. And we're comparing the new drug against the standard licensed therapy of multiple sclerosis, which is beta interferon. So this is a head-to-head study saying, does this new drug, Campath, Alemtuzumab, work better than beta interferon? And the results were this, that uh, Alemtuzumab, Campath, is vastly more effective than beta interferon. It does three things. Firstly, it reduces the chance of having an attack of multiple sclerosis over three years by over 70% compared to taking the standard treatment. Secondly, it reduces the chance of becoming disabled over three years by over 70%. And both of those things we were expecting. The third result, though, which we weren't expecting, is that at the end of three years, patients who'd taken alemtuzumab or Campath were actually less disabled than they had been at the start of the study. So three years later... They were now more able to work, more able to look after their family, more able to play their sports. And that has forced us to go back and say, do we really understand the disease of multiple sclerosis? Because up until now, people have always thought that once you've got disability from multiple sclerosis, that is due to permanent scarring in the brain, and that will never get better. And we had imagined that the best we could get out of any treatment of multiple sclerosis is that people would just stay the same and not get any worse. But amazingly, we now see people getting better. What do you think is going on? Well, we're back to the drawing board on this. One idea is that when the immune system recovers after being attacked by this drug, Alemtuzumab or Campath, that immune cells grow back, which are capable of getting into the brain and secreting factors which promote the repair and the survival of neurons and of the cells which produce myelin oligodendrocytes. That's certainly not what we were expecting, but we've found it to be true. Alistair Coles, and he's a consultant neurologist based at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. If you have any questions about the science of pathology and medicine, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. All this week, all over the country, the Royal College of Pathologists has been running events to get people to engage with pathology and get away from the image that pathology is all about forensics and death. Although autopsies are vital to understanding disease, and if you stick around, we will be taking you through a process of a real autopsy, but the vast majority of a pathologist's work is done for the living. That's diagnosing diseases such as infections and cancer. Well, Professor Adrian Newland is the president of the 
the Royal College of Pathologists. And so we are honoured to have him with us in the studio right now. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for coming in. Hi. It's great to have you with us. So we thought we could start off by asking you, what really does it constitute to be a pathologist? Who are pathologists? Well, the, the simple answer to that is pathologists are involved with diagnosis, but there are at least 18 different types of pathologists who are involved with all aspects of the living from pregnancy and infertility right through to death and fatal diseases. Many of those types of pathologists will actually look after patients, will be involved in their care on the wards in addition to the diagnoses. And of course, many are also involved in the research behind the diseases. We're very keen to look at the, at the, at the basis of disease. So we're involved in research and development to try and find out why diseases happen and how can we improve treatments. So it's really the everything about, about diseases, I guess. And uh, But it's it just doctors that are pathologists? No, we, we're the, the, they're a wide group of scientists as well. Our 20% of the members of our college are actually clinical scientists. Uh, we work together as a team in all aspects of, of diagnosis, research and, and patient care. And you yourself are a, a haematologist, is that right? Yes, that's right. So you deal with blood? Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and I gather that you also do, um, you talk to patients, you, meet, you, you work you know, in that sort of capacity as well as more on the research side yourself. So that must, you must have an insight already into just how diverse um, a job being a pathologist is and the sort of things you do on a day-to-day basis. Yes, I, I cover all those aspects. In fact, it was one of the big attractions of going into the specialty, the fact that I could look after patients and take their blood and take it to the laboratory and actually be involved with the diagnosis. I didn't have to send a sample off, get a result back on a bit of paper and deal with it. That's the whole exciting element of, of, of that as, a, as an area to work in. And you're president of the Royal College of Pathologists. Now, what, what exactly is the role of that organisation? What, what do you do? Well, we, we have, I guess, four main aims. We're involved in training, particularly training uh, trainees in, in, in pathology. We're involved in maintaining standards developing guidelines, we're involved in promoting research and we're also involved in actually educating the patients and public in what pathology is and what their diseases are and to give them awareness of their, of their bodies. And this week is National Pathology Week and it's the first time this has ever happened. What, what was the idea behind having this week? Well, we, we've, we've been doing some work at the college in developing an education centre and that was actually finished this, this month. We took, uh, we took it over and we thought we'd celebrate this by actually developing the part of our mission, which was patient awareness and patient education. And National Pathology Week seemed a great way of doing that. And the enthusiasm we've had from members of the college around the country has been absolutely fantastic. And uh, I would have thought maybe on the surface that things like that, that on TV we watch programmes like CSI and all those sort of uh, things in dealing with autopsies and, and uh, the forensic side of things. Would that not be a good thing just to get people knowing about pathology? But perhaps you think maybe it's not such a good thing. I, I, I don't think it is. I, mean, I, I think that's fine, and we want to put the forensics into perspective, but uh, m- many patients aren't, m- many members of the public aren't even aware we're doctors, and so I think it re- gives a rather distorted uh, idea of what pathology is. So that's the beginning of it, but there's so much more to it as well. Well, we've had quite a few questions that we're going to actually uh, throw your way, if that's OK, um, Adrian. And I've got a question here from uh, Jaco Dupriz, and he wants to know, I presume he, I'm sorry if it's a she, um, how are blood cells made? Well, the, the blood cells are made in the bone marrow, in the bone space, in particular in the pelvis, in the, in, the, in the bones in the back, in the ribs and the sternum. And they're made from stem cells that then incorporate protein, iron, all the sort of building blocks of haemoglobin that are then encapsulated in cells that are pushed out into the blood at, at many millions of cells every day. 
got a question here, um, Adrian, which is from Jeremiah, and he says, what role do the appendix and tonsils play? Because they are presumably immune organs, aren't they? Yes, I, the gut has lots of areas of immune uh, of the immune system throughout it to try and deal with any infections that come in through the mouth and go down into the gut. The tonsils themselves are particularly important early on in life, and that's often one of the reasons why kids and teenagers have such problems with their tonsils. They they get exposed to, to airborne bugs, they stimulate the tonsils to develop immunity to those bugs, and the tonsils get bigger and cause bouts of tonsillitis. Yeah, I had my tonsils out when I was little, and it wasn't very nice at all, <laughs> but since then I've been absolutely fine. Adrian, there's a question from John in Peterborough. He says he's heard that in America they have some kind of body farm that researches dead bodies. Is there anything like this in the UK? I guess that tissue banks and things would, would fit that criterion, wouldn't they? Yes, I'm, I'm not aware of any body farms in the UK, unless they're, unless they're hidden away somewhere. But You're aware of any body farms in America? <laughs> no, I'm not aware of body farms in America, actually. But uh, we, we do have a lot of tissue banks that, that certainly have been regulated following the Human Tissue Act that came through, and these are very important resource if researchers want to have material uh, to go and look at, to look at either disease or to look at normal tissue. So that if you want to find out the cause of a particular sort of thyroid, for instance, from the bank, you can get 30 samples and look at them. It's great. Thanks, Adrian. That's, that was Adrian Newland, the president of the Royal College of Pathologists, and he'll be with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions at all about pathology, what it's like to be a pathologist or anything like that, then do get in touch. The address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you, Helen. We've got quite a few people who are responding to Ben's uh, outbreak scenario where he was down at the Royal College of Pathologists earlier this week where they had a simulation of what would happen if an infectious disease was discovered in London where would it spread to and how would we contain it? Martin Bletchley doesn't sound very optimistic. He says, would in the real world this country be able to cope with a plague-type disease? And also Bernard McGee says, how many mutations are necessary for bacteria to become airborne when they're previously not? Well, the answer for that, Bernard, is that not all bacteria spread through the air and they don't have to mutate necessarily to do it. Some bacteria do spread in the air. Anthrax is a good example of a bacterium that can spread in the air because it can make spores. C. diff, the hospital superbug that causes diarrhoea, can spread in the air because it makes spores. These are sort of cysts of the bacteria that are very, very small, they're very hardy, and they can float around on the air. People breathe them in, swallow them, and then they get down into the person's guts. Another example is viruses, things like norovirus that causes cruise line um, outbreaks of diarrhoea and vomiting. Very nasty. Um, I had it myself, got it from a wedding, actually. Not very nice. But that similarly can be breathed in and it doesn't have to mutate to infect you. So anything pretty much can spread via the air if it's adapted to do that. Now this is The Naked Scientist and because it's National Pathology Week, not surprisingly, we're talking about pathology. Shortly, Diana will be with us to talk about how long it will take to wipe out all traces of humanity that's ever existed and also Ben will be finding out whether or not He's actually got the answer to what we should do about a plague outbreak in central London. But first, we're going to look at the thing that most people probably associate with pathology, and that's the question of a post-mortem. Now, sometimes we can't say for certain why someone's died just by looking at them or examining them, and it's very important that we understand why people die, because apart from checking that death's due to natural causes, it's also how we learn about diseases, and it's also how we find out how those diseases present in the first place, and also how we can improve our ability to diagnose and manage those conditions so that we can care for people who are living better in the future. Now, the way in which pathologists go about this is by carrying out a post-mortem, and consultant pathologist Alison Cluro took me through a case that she dealt with recently. Now, the descriptions in this piece are quite graphic, so if you are at all queasy or you think you might be distressed by hearing how a post-mortem's carried out, then you might want to turn off your radio for about 10 minutes, which is roughly how long this took. 
My name is Dr. Alison Cluro and I'm a pathologist. This morning I'm going to take you through a post-mortem examination on a 72-year-old lady who died at home. She had a history of high blood pressure, gout and indigestion and of late had complained of um, abdominal distension. Uh, she had been to see her GP but uh, was very reluctant to go to hospital. Uh, the GP had arranged for her to undergo some tests and those were uh, going to happen over the course of the next few days when unfortunately she died unexpectedly and suddenly at home. And presumably because we don't know why she died, the GP couldn't say Therefore, it comes to you to try and work out what was going on with this lady and why she's unfortunately died. Yes, because the GP cannot issue a death certificate, the case becomes a coronial case. It's referred to the coroner, and uh, he then looks at all the information and makes a decision as to whether we proceed to a post-mortem examination to establish if this is, in fact, a natural death. And looking at this lady, what jumps out at you in your external examination? What do you think is going on here? In essence, she has a massively distended abdomen, which uh, does raise questions that some intra-abdominal catastrophe has taken place. Now, looking at that distended abdomen, I would be wondering, has she got an intestinal obstruction? She certainly has evidence that she has been vomiting, and that is clear from looking at the body. And one would have to conclude the likelihood is that this is an obstruction. Whether it's an obstruction from something like an internal hernia or twisted bowel or tumour, we will have to wait until we do the internal examination. And the fact that she had a history of high blood pressure, could that be, say, an aneurysm? Yes, she does have a history of hypertension, and one of the pathologies that goes hand-in-hand with that is an aneurysm of the abdominal aorta. The aorta is a large artery running through uh, the abdomen, and uh, on occasion in people with hypertension it can balloon out so the wall becomes paper-thin. Uh, it's carrying a large amount of blood under pressure, so there is a possibility that this balloon can burst with massive intra-abdominal hemorrhage, so that would be an another possible in the differential diagnosis. The next step presumably is to open the body up and have a look what's going on inside. Indeed, at that point we undertake an evisceration which is done in combination with a mortuary technician. So now we're opening the chest and abdomen and uh, we can see this distended abdomen very tight. As the abdomen is opened, there's a large amount of blood-stained fluid uh, pouring from the opening and large loops of uh, uh, distended bowel packing the abdominal cavity. There's a small hernia uh, next to the um, umbilicus, the, the belly button, where a small piece of bowel has pushed through the abdominal wall. It's a possibility at this moment that that hernia has caused an obstruction to the bowel and is responsible for uh, a lot of the pathology that we're uh, uh, seeing here. How, how would that happen if that were the case? The small piece of bowel uh, gets uh, trapped within the hernial sac and, uh, and obstructed, so no fluid, no food, nothing can pass further along the bowel. So as more fluid is drunk and more food is eaten, the bowel distends and distends and distends, and this causes the abdominal distension that we see. Actually, as I'm watching this happening, and I see the technician is starting to dissect a little bit further, there appears to be some sort of tumour in here. So I'm beginning to change my thought processes as we go along here. There's some little um, patches of it 
on the on the wall of the abdomen that we can yes, see. Yes, we can see here on the, the shiny peritoneal surface, the lining of the abdomen, there are several nodules of white tumour that are now apparent as we've folded back the abdominal wall. It's also apparent that we've got large masses of tumour uh, gluing the, the loops of small bowel and large bowel in the back of the stomach. So it looks to me, in fact, that as if this lady has got a, a massive intra-abdominal tumour that's probably arising from one of the intra-abdominal organs. So what, maybe bowel or maybe ovary? Maybe bowel, uh, although with that pattern of spread, I would be wondering about ovary because commonly bowel likes to go to the liver, whereas uh, ovary likes to go around the abdominal cavity. So the pattern I'm seeing at the moment would make me think it might be going to be an ovarian tumour. So I suppose if we now look through the organs that have been removed, we, we might get some clues. Yes, I think so. I think we should move on and have a look at the organs now. So uh, what I'm going to do is uh, capture each of the organs individually, and we're starting with the spleen, a slightly softened spleen, which suggests some underlying infection, not surprisingly with the uh, uh, degree of disease going on within the abdomen here and intestinal obstruction, but it doesn't appear to have any tumour in it. We're moving on to have a look at the kidneys. I can see no evidence of tumour. There is, however, evidence of surface scarring in this kidney. Yes, it's not smooth, is it? There are some little sort of pock marks on the surface. What are they? That's right. The pockmarked areas would suggest previous episodes of kidney infection, pyelonephritis. These leave quite coarse scars on the surface. In addition, there's a very fine granular scarring over the whole surface of the kidney, which is something you see in people who have a history of hypertension, high blood pressure. But that wouldn't have caused the, the present problem. No, no, those are incidental findings. If we move on to have a look at the liver, as I slice through the liver, uh, we can see two tiny tumour deposits, which are the white, soft, fleshy tumours, exactly the same as we're seeing within the abdomen. Yes, they stand out really prominently, don't they, because the liver's a nice, brown, very homogeneous, regular colour and appearance, and there are these white blobs standing there as though someone's actually pressed them on. That's right. Very clear, well-defined white nodules which are metastatic deposits of tumour. So this tumour has spread to the lady's liver. And and would it get there through the blood supply then? Likely to have spread by bloodstream. Tumours spread by three methods, direct spread, through the bloodstream and through the lymphatic channels and the lymph nodes. In this case, this would be blood-borne spread, yes. If we uh, move on now to have a look at the... uh, thoracic organs, the organs within the chest. We'll start by having a look at this lady's heart because we know that she has a history of high blood pressure. That tends to make the heart enlarge. And as we're examining it here, I think you can see that she does, in fact, have a big heart, a very meaty-looking left ventricle of the heart. This is the one that pumps the blood around the body. It's quite evident that there is a thickening of the wall, which would be compatible with the history, as we know, of high blood pressure. Looking at her coronary arteries, these are the blood vessels that supply the heart, and often these become hardened with with fatty deposits of atheroma, but in this case, in fact, her coronary arteries are in very good condition. She has hardly any atheroma. Yes, I wish my heart was that good. I suspect it's not, but this looks less normal, though, here. What's this? Yes, as we're moving on now, I'm uh, actually uh, looking at this lady's trachea, her main airway from the back of her throat, and that airway is packed with vomit, so she has aspirated vomit. And if we now actually move on to look at the lungs, you will see that all the tiny airways ways extending all the way out to the periphery of the lung are packed with this vomit. So unfortunately the 
the actual final cause of death in this lady is her massive aspiration of gastric contents. And that would have caused asphyxia, presumably? Yes, yes. Essentially, she would have asphyxiated and been unable to breathe uh, as a consequence of that. But we need to actually now go to the main source of the problem, which will explain why she has had such a massive aspiration of vomit. We have here the uh, gastrointestinal system, and we can see that the small bowel uh, is massively dilated, and as we move down its length, there's a huge, huge lump of tumour that completely encircles and encases the bowel and has essentially obstructed the bowel. Does this give you any clues as to what sort of tumour this is yet, though? Well, I think I'm still of the opinion that I would favour this being an ovarian primary tumour. So we've opened the bowel, we're looking at the bowel from the inside. I can't see any tumour arising from within the lining of the bowel, which is where you would expect a primary bowel cancer to come from. So I guess the answer is to actually take a look at the ovaries and see if if there are signs of cancer there. Yes, and I have here in front of me the pelvic organs, uh, which includes both the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, and the uterus or womb. And I think you can probably see that there are these sort of craggy, white, nodular deposits all over the surface of the uterus and also over both the left and right ovaries. Uh, Quite hard to make out where the fallopian tubes are because they're completely encased and embedded in these two tumour masses surrounding the ovaries and I am certain that what we're dealing with here is a primary ovarian tumour with metastasis within and throughout the abdominal cavity and ultimately spread to the liver as well. So we started today with someone who was found collapsed at home. They died suddenly. That's all we knew. So if if you could put it all together for us and tell us how you've actually reached the conclusion you have as to what happened to this lady. Yes. Well, in summary, this lady has essentially had a large tumour, I would think, growing for some time in her abdominal cavity, causing abdominal distension. We have massive tumour deposits in her abdomen. These have ultimately ended up compressing and obstructing her bowel. So she's developed a bowel obstruction where the contents of the bowel can no longer pass normally through, and which has caused her to begin to vomit. Uh, and this vomiting has ultimately been so much that she has actually been unable to breathe and vomit at the same time. So she's ended up breathing in a large amount of the gastrointestinal content into her lungs, and that has caused her acute and sudden death. Alison Cluro giving us an insight into her job as a consultant pathologist. Thank you very much for that, Alison. I would also like to say a very big thank you to Her Majesty's Coroner, who kindly gave us permission to take part in that post-mortem. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science... The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris and Helen, and this week we're talking about the science of pathology, but right now we're going to find out about the possibility of erasing all traces of human existence. Yes, it's time to invite Diana O'Carroll back into the studio for our question of the week. And Diana's obviously unhappy with this miserable weather we have today. She's wrapped up in her coat, looking very cold. Hi, Diana. Hello. It is really cold in these studios. always freeze. Um, Anyway, this week I'm doing a bit of pathology of the entire human race, so I'll get out my trowel. Hi, I'm Andy from Kings Lynn. I was wondering, if humans were to become extinct, how long before all traces of our existence were to disappear? So, can Coke bottles and plastic bags last that long? My name is uh, Dr John Nudds from the University of Manchester, where I'm a senior lecturer in paleontology. So, thinking first in terms of an archaeological time scale, if the human race were to become extinct tomorrow, then our buildings and roads would gradually decay, 
and possibly within a hundred or hundreds of years, many buildings would start to collapse. Now, of course, the sturdier stone-built buildings would remain standing for much longer than this, as we know, because we still have Greek temples and Egyptian pyramids with us today. But if we think in terms of those ancient civilizations, it would only be a few millennia before our cities would firstly be overcome by vegetation and then would be buried by silt and sediment. But if you consider the fabrics used in modern-day construction, reinforced concrete, plastics, etc., these would certainly survive burial for at least as long as the two-million-year-old stone tools dating from the early humans from Africa, for example. But if we think in terms of a geological time scale, now this country, and indeed most of Europe, has been under the sea for a much greater part of its geological history than it has been land. So one thing we can be certain of is that sea levels will rise again, and this country will be flooded once more by a shallow sea, and then all of our cities will become deeply buried by marine sediments, and over geological time, over millions of years, they'll be preserved in a rock stratum, in just the same way that dinosaurs are preserved in rock strata from 65 million years ago. So what about the actual human remains? Well, when we consider that the oldest fossils we have on Earth are three and a half billion year old single-celled microscopic soft-bodied bacteria, if such tiny and delicate organisms can survive for that long, then certainly the robust skeletons of Homo sapiens uh, can survive for, for similar timescales. In actual fact, organisms that live in the sea are much more likely to be buried quickly and fossilized than organisms like ourselves that live on land. And so human fossils will always be rather scarce. We know this already because although hominids have been around for, say, five million years, the actual numbers of fossil human skeletons is very low. But certainly some of us will be fossilized and we will survive buried in rock strata again for as long as the planet exists. So to answer the question... When the human race does eventually become extinct, as it certainly will, a low evidence of our existence will disappear from the Earth's surface relatively quickly, say within a few millennia. Evidence of our existence will survive buried at depth, probably for as long as the planet survives. It seems our remains will last as long as the Earth, but who will be there to find it is a different question. So the next question of the week is more to do with looking backwards in time. Hi, this is Kathleen from Portland, Oregon in the United States, and I'm wondering why are humans the only animals who cook their meat? Does it give us an advantage against parasites, or is it just cultural at this point? So why bother cooking? Should we put Gordon Ramsay out of business? Let us know by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or have a scribble on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much to Diana O'Carroll. And in fact, Diana, being an archaeologist, will be bringing us more exciting things next week because next week's show is dedicated to the science of archaeology. We'll be finding out about some exciting goings on in Peru and also what modern day science is telling us about the nefarious activities that really went on in Stonehenge. So until next week, thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists and it's now time to go back to our Kitchen Science of the Week where Ben is at the Royal College of Pathologists and we'll find out if he's done enough to stop the outbreak of the plague. Um, but uh, Chris, have we had any suggestions coming in on, on the li- phone lines of what we should do if uh, there is an outbreak in London? And I should just point out there isn't at the moment a plague outbreak in London, um, at least not that we know about. Yes, because um, well, Ben was saying... 
can you give us any suggestions? We've had quite a lot of people who are making some suggestions. Puki Amsterdam says we need to quarantine everybody. Um, Emmy Recall Ferraris says you need to round everyone up in a concentration camp and force them to be vaccinated. Uh, also, there are various people suggesting the introduction of a plague of cats to London to kill off the rats, but then they're worrying that perhaps the cats might just become vectors for the fleas and spread it even further. But Loretta McGuinness got a very important point to make and says that, that she thinks that we need vector control and antibiotics. So, Well, shall we find out if she's right? Let's go back to Ben. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. So far, we've been faced with the very real possibility of an outbreak of plague in London and asked what would be the best things to do to try and contain it. At the Royal College of Pathologists, we decided to kill as many rats as possible and use pesticides to control the fleas, quarantine the infected and call in the Health Protection Agency. Dr Tim Reggett, who is from the Health Protection Agency and Addenbrooke's Hospital, explained what he thought of our containment techniques, starting with the killing of the rats. The idea is that you can't control rats and you can't get rid of fleas, but the more you reduce the population, the lower you make the risk. So you can't eliminate them, you try everything you can to reduce the number in a particular area. Quarantine the infected area, that's really important. So you need to know where the new cases are. And this is where this is a really good thing. Tell health professionals. I think that's one of the most important things you've got down here because this is a very rare disease. Very few uh, medical people in this country will have seen a case of plague because it doesn't occur in this country. So you've only got the odd case that may come in um, as an imported disease. So most people couldn't recognise it if it was their neighbour. And so that they need to be told what the symptoms are. So... You need an extensive health programme to educate health professionals and to alert the health protection unit about these cases. Then you can find those cases, isolate them. And and something that you haven't mentioned, actually, is giving antibiotics, because this is a disease which is controlled by antibiotics if you give it within 24 hours after people get symptoms. So finding the people really quickly with the relevant symptoms, giving them early treatment with ciprofloxacin or an antibiotic like that, will make the mortality go down from 60% to less than 5%. So it's really important. And also, those people who've been exposed to cases, if you give them prophylactic antibiotics, by which I mean as soon as they've been exposed to the risk, you then give them antibiotics to prevent them getting the infection. That's really important as well. So we were right to quarantine the area, call in the experts and start trying to control the vector. But because we didn't think of prophylactic antibiotics, the mortality rate would have been higher than it should be. But the real question is, did we do enough to contain the outbreak? To find out, we have to go back to the news. We return now once more to the scene where several weeks ago we reported on the mysterious illness that had affected several workmen and tragically claimed the life of another. We are joined by Amy Stevens from the Health Protection Agency. Amy, can you tell us a little more about the strategy and measures you used to stop this disease in its tracks? Following extensive analysis, we were able to identify that the bacteria was Yersinia pestis, also better known as the plague. Thankfully, today, this is a disease that is easily and effectively treated with antibiotics. Infected individuals from the area and from the work site were quarantined and treated and were kept under careful surveillance until tests showed that they were clear of infection. It is now completely absent from the site. We consider it to be successfully contained. That's great news. Thank you, Amy. 
So the measures we put into place were enough to contain the disease and avoid a major outbreak. And if you thought of the same sorts of things, well done. You're the kind of person we need around if there's ever an outbreak of plague. Thanks, Ben. So that's right, a virtual outbreak was narrowly averted by controlling the vector, that's killing off all those nasty rats and fleas, and quarantining the area and calling in the Health Protection Agency. So, as as Ben said, if you thought of any of those ideas, give yourself a big round of applause. The nation's health will be safe in your hands. Thank you, Helen. We have with us uh, Professor Adrian Newland, a haematologist who's also president of the Royal College of Pathologists. Um, I've got a question from, for you from Cheryl in Hopton-on-Sea, and she said Campath, the antibody we were talking about earlier, was given to her daughter in the 1990s for Wegener's granulomatosis. But she says, why are some drugs effective against more than one disease, Adrian? In diseases such as Wegener's, which is an autoimmune disease, it's the immune system, the lymphocytes that actually cause the damage. Campath just uh, removes those, yeah, whatever the disease, and will deal with, with that. So it takes away the cell that basically Absolutely. is causing the disease, so the disease gets better? Yeah. Thomas wants to know, why does blood not clot when it's in a surgical drain? Well, it it may eventually clot, but at the operation site, blood gets activated, so the clotting factors actually get get stimulated and removed. So the blood isn't able to clot, and it would build up around the wound and cause damage and prevent healing, so it's sucked out. So when you say clotting factors, Adrian, what what actually are they? They're little cells called platelets, but also uh, chemicals within the blood called factors clotting factors. How do they work? They, they work by becoming activated by uh, raw tissue and they form a little, what's like a spider's web that brings the blood together. And it grabs, grabs blood cells, yes. presumably, as, yeah. as they're trying to ooze yeah. out. And so it, it forms this meshwork and the, you don't bleed anymore. That's right, yes. So if you've got oozing through that of just plasma and things, so what Thomas might have been seeing in his drain was just sort of it, plasma it, minus yeah. these factors because they've already been removed. It would be that exudate that's oozed out and is being sucked away. Very quickly, last one from John Chapman. He says, how many calories do you need to replace the tissue lost when you give a pint of blood away? That's, that's a, about 650 calories, which I'm reliably informed is three Mars bars. So why would it take energy to replace blood? Because anything that develops tissue requires energy. Oh, right, OK. So what you're saying is you just need to put the energy back in. You just need to put the energy back in, yes. OK, thank you very much, Adrian. I have to say, that's all we've got time for. So thank you very much to Professor Adrian Newland. Um, And he has asked me to say that if you want to know more about National Pathology Week, you can look on the web at nationalpathologyweek.org. Also, thank you to Alison Cluro and Alistair Coles and our wonderful production team, Ben Valsler, Tom Simpkins. Happy birthday to you, Tom. It's his birthday today. And also Diana O'Carroll. Next week, we're finding out about the science of archaeology, mysteries of peoples from Peru, and what modern ice topic techniques are revealing about what really went on at Stonehenge. Have a great week. See you next time. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.